As you take a seat, uh, why don't you grab your Bibles and then open up to the book of Philippians. We uh, are continuing our study in this wonderful epistle from the Apostle Paul, and we have an opportunity now to uh, look at just a few verses here in chapter 1, verses 22 through 26. Uh, grateful to have Jonathan back with us. Um, and just noticing that there are quite a few people in our church that are not feeling well, so um, continue to, to pray for the Lord's healing, and uh, we know that many of you are tuning in online, so I just want to let you know that we, uh, we love you, we miss you, and we are praying that uh, you feel better soon. But now I have the privilege to, to uh, open up Philippians with you, and uh, my heart is delighted because this is just such a great passage of Scripture. Well, if you ever uh, come over to the Avila home, maybe that's a Taco Tuesday or you're just hanging out with us and sitting at the dinner table, you might hear us uh, play a little game, and that game is called Would You Rather? Now, how many of you guys like that game, Would You Rather? So we have three kids who have quite an imagination, and so we play this game quite often, and uh, a lot of times it kind of devolves into um, kind of a painful and scary game because it's, Dad, would you rather be eaten by a shark or mauled by a bear? And uh, that one's actually easy for me. I will be mauled by a bear all day before I get in the water and try to fight with a shark. I tell my kids I can't run in the water. I, mean, I could maybe run on land. So that is an easy option for me. What's harder is trying to decide between something really good and something else really good. So uh, when you think about like powers, and I asked my wife last night, I said, babe, would you love to be able, would you rather be able to just warp anywhere in the world just by closing your eyes and thinking about it? Or would you rather be able to heal yourself from any disease or sickness? Which one would you rather do? That was kind of easy for her. Here's what I struggled with. Dom, would you rather have strawberry rhubarb pie or lemon raspberry cheesecake? Lemon raspberry cheesecake. That one's much tougher. Well, this morning as we come to Philippians 1.22 through 26, this is where Paul finds himself in prison, debating, contemplating, considering these two great options. He's chained to a Roman guard, and in his mind, he is thinking through, which of the two should I choose? Because both are wonderful. Both are great. And we title this, Two Holy Ambitions. And so let's read Philippians chapter 1. We'll start back in verse 21, which we hit on last week, and then we will go all the way through 26. For to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm going to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your joy, or for your progress and joy in the faith so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. 
Again, this is God's word to us this morning. Would you please join me one more time as we pray and ask the Spirit to be our help? Father, we need desperately your Spirit's empowerment, illumination, direction, wisdom, teaching, and Lord, softening. Father, we need to be softened in our own hearts, not just to hear and to learn, but to obey. And so would you please work um, just the wonder of sanctification in our own hearts as we consider this text together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we took two weeks just looking at verse 21 of chapter 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you think back, what we learned uh, when the apostles said, for me to live, that means a number of things. But we said primarily that Paul is considering the, the fact that for me to live means that Christ is your personal Lord and Savior. He's not just mom's personal Lord and Savior or dad's Lord and Savior, but you, he is your personal Lord and Savior. And we also said if he's your personal Lord and Savior, then you will publicly live for him. You will publicly display him. Christianity is not some sort of just private religion, something that you do in your own time and no one knows about it, but it is something that is very public and visible. Not showy, but visible. Then we also said that to live as Christ means that Christ is the purpose for which you live. And if he's the purpose for which you live, then that's going to mean that he's the number one priority in your life. If he's the number one priority in your life, then he will be the thing that you pursue the most, the thing that you are passionate about the most, the thing that brings you the most pleasure. And if all those things are true, then it is quite obvious that you will want to fall in the pattern of Christ's life. And so those are just a number of things, and there's so many more of what it means to live is Christ. For the Christian, to live is Christ means that Jesus really is the sum and substance of all that we are, all that we think, all that we say. We want Christ at the center, and that is how Paul lived his life. That's how he felt. He said, everything, everything that I have, everything that I am is bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul would later write this in Colossians when he says, Christ is our life. That's a great summary. Christ is our life. And you're very familiar with those great words in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then last week, we focused in on the last half of verse 21. So for me to live, Christ. To die, gain. And we asked the question, well, what does that mean, to die, gain? And we're reminded that Paul faced a real possibility that death was coming. And he didn't know how soon it was going to come. Um, but he is in prison thinking about his own imminent death. And when you think about death, you start to think about the things that matter the most. So for some of you who got COVID and you were really sick, I am sure that you had death in your mind. And you start thinking about your life and how well you lived and how much more time you have and what you want to do with the time that remains. But death has a way to sober us and to get us thinking critically and intentionally about how we're living but Paul, remarkably, even though this might be his last communication as he writes this letter to the Philippians, 
Even though he might only have a few days, Paul is not anxious. He's not worried. He's not concerned. He's not terrified. In fact, the text says that Paul is actually rejoicing. And he wants the Philippians to rejoice. He's not looking at them circumstances and saying, woe is me. He's not looking at his jail time and all the people that are jealous of him and complaining. No, in fact, what we see is Paul is rejoicing. Why? Because what matters most to Paul is that, is the gospel being preached? Is the gospel being advanced? Because if it is, it doesn't matter what happens to me, I will rejoice. And so here again, Paul is faced with prison and thinking through his own mortality, his own date with death. And his desire is to go home and be with Christ. And yet at the same time, he's got a competing desire to remain on for the benefit of those in the church. So here's our main idea. If you're taking notes, write this down. Our main idea is this, one sentence. Believers should long to be with Christ and labor in love for Christ's people. I'm gonna say it one more time. Believers should long to be with Christ and we should all labor in love for Christ's people. You see, a Christ-centered view of life and death will produce this. It will produce a deep longing to, to hurry up and want to go home and be with Jesus. And yet at the same time, it'll produce a diligent labor to help others come to faith in Christ, to mature in Christ, and ultimately to rejoice in Christ. You and I will be able to face death because we know that this exit, this death, doesn't lead to non-existence. No, it leads to glory. And because of that, we're thrilled and we're excited and we, we can't wait for that day. And yet at the same time, we realize that it is necessary for us to continue on, to continue in ministry. It might be better for us to go, but like my wife told me this morning, she woke me up, I don't know, like three o'clock, she had a dream. Hopefully it's not prophetic. I don't, we don't believe that here. But she said, I, I had a dream and you, you died in my dream. And she said, don't die. And I realized, man, like I want to go home and be with Jesus. But I also want to raise my kids. I want to continue to love my wife. I want to continue to preach and serve the church. So this dilemma that Paul has here, I think is a real dilemma that I experienced. And I know that you have thought of as well. But if you have the choice to die and be with the Lord or to remain, what do you think you would choose? What would you choose? The Christian's answer to that question should really be dramatic, dramatically different from the rest of the world. I don't think the world is eager to go to death. People want to live. Now, that's the obvious choice. So of course I want to continue to live but it's different than the way Paul is thinking here. Paul wanted to die and go be with Christ, but he was willing to live. Death was desirable to him over life, not in some like suicidal or sadistic way, but because death meant for Paul a gateway to glory. It meant that Paul would enjoy what we talked about last week, a new city, a city that God has prepared. Remember Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. Paul wanted that. Not only that, but Paul wanted this new company that we talked about last week too, to be in the presence of all the saints of all time, 
To, to, to be in the presence of the angels, the myriad of angels, these magnificent beings worshiping God, to be in the presence of those that have went before us and, and passed away. He wanted to be in that company. And he also wanted to be more Christ-like than he had ever experienced here on earth. To see Christ face-to-face, -face, to be conformed to him, transformed him fully, finally, and perfectly in a way that he's never experienced here on earth. And we said last week as well that he wanted that sweet communion, that communion that we only think about and dream about, but we're hindered because of this life of limitations and sin. But the Lord Jesus was everything to Paul. He longed, he longs to finally be with Christ in heaven. And the commentator, William Hendrickson, says this. He captures Paul's heart perfectly when he writes, Death is gain because it brings more of Christ to Paul and more of Paul to Christ. Well, let's look at these two holy ambitions in our text this morning. Here's our outline. We're first going to look at Paul's dilemma. We're going to consider that in Philippians 1, through 23a. Then we'll look at Paul's desire in 23b and 24, and then Paul's determination. We'll conclude there with verses 25 and 26. So Paul's dilemma, Paul's desire, and then Paul's determination. Look at what it says there in verse 22, Paul's dilemma. If I'm going to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I will choose, but I am hard-pressed between the two. What Paul is communicating here is he's having a very strong emotional response. There's this conflict that's going on inside of him. Think of it as an inward struggle, almost a, a tug of war on his heart and even on his will. That phrase there, if I am to live on in the flesh, it simply means that if he's to continue on in this physical, earthly life, if he's to continue living, Usually when we see that word flesh, we think of it in a kind of sinful terms, connotations, but he's not talking about that. Now, what will happen if the Lord allows Paul to be released and then extends his life? Well, if acquitted, if released, it only means one thing for Paul. One thing. It means more fruitful labor. That's why Paul wants to continue on because he wants more effective ministry. He's zealous for that. If Paul remains earthbound, he'll be able to bear more fruit for God. He'll be able to put more investment in his heavenly accounts. Think about this. More converts. More churches planted, established. More missionary effort. More churches strengthened more individual believers discipled. That was Paul's life. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's discipling, he's counseling, he's loving, he's serving. This is Paul's life. He's all about gospel advancements. And I don't think I have to remind you that gospel advancement, it's hard work. Gospel advancement, good, pure, holy gospel advancement is hard work. And that's what Paul equated with continuing to live. Good, fruitful gospel work. That word, work, ergon, it's often used by Paul to describe ministry. Paul is like a worker bee. And right now he's confined. But even while he's confined in prison, he's still working. He's still evangelizing and seeing soldiers saved for the cause of Christ. But look, ministry is work. Serving people 
is hard work. And you say, well, I really don't like work. But listen, this is what you were created for. God created you and saved you so that you would do the work of ministry for Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll see this as we flip the page. In verse 10 says this, you tell me, for you are his what? Workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It is spiritual labor. Later in Philippians 2.13, we'll read this, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul, he loved to see the Spirit of God working through him for the cause of Christ. And he sets the example for others who are following, for Timothy and for Titus, and even Epaphroditus, who it says in chapter 2, verse 30, he came close to death for the work of Christ. You know, one of the idols, one of the American idols, is for us to hurry up and finish working so that we can retire and then begin to enjoy life. That is not the biblical mindset. Paul, he didn't want to be released from prison so he can retire to the beach and go enjoy some Mai Tais. But that's not Paul's desire here. He's not wanting to cash out and spend the rest of his life on himself. If he's going to be released, he wants to invest in fruitful labor. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 says this, We proclaim him. We preach him. We tell others about him. We evangelize, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul labors to see the maturity of believers, but listen to what he says. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which he mightily works within me. Or listen to the very vivid description that Paul gives in Galatians 4.19 when he says, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Ladies, how many of you have had labor before? Been in labor? Okay. That's not like a pleasant, you know, skipping, licking a lollipop kind of experience. It's hard work. And Paul says, I am laboring like that to see you mature in Christ so that you would be satisfied in Christ. So if the Lord's going to give Paul more sand in his hourglass, that just means more ministry for him. He just wants more ministry. If released, he's just going to go right back to his labors, but without all the constraints, without the confinements. You have him in prison, and he's gospelizing the soldiers. You let him out, he's just going to go do more of the same. Now, what's fascinating about all of that is that Paul understands the implications of what it will mean for him to continue on doing ministry. When we think about ministry, ministry is beautiful. We love to see people mature in Christ. But you realize this, that ministry comes at a cost. We have some brothers up in Canada who are in prison because they love ministry. Continue on ministry means for Paul that he's likely going to receive more opposition, more persecution. He will go to prison one more time, 
And ultimately, it means his death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 30, I am in danger every hour. And you say, Paul, isn't that a little bit of an exaggeration? Maybe. But certainly, there were times where every hour he was in danger. Why don't you turn real quickly with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to show you a few passages in 2 Corinthians just so we can get a, an idea of the stuff that Paul had to face because of his labor and work for the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And look there in verse 8. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8. Paul writes this. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about the body, the dying of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That is what Christian labor, Christian ministry looked like for the Apostle Paul. Turn on over to a couple pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6, and look there in verse 4. Paul writes here, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in affliction, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Look down at verse 8. Dishonor, evil reports, regarded as deceivers. We are unknown as dying, yet behold we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet at the same time, the beauty of Christianity possessing all things. And as we think about, especially 2 Corinthians, what's the context that Paul is writing that letter? He's writing to a church where people had come in and infiltrated the church and started to convince them that Paul was all about himself. He wanted the money, he wanted the fame, he wanted the prestige. And so Paul is writing as a way to defend his apostleship. And now turn to chapter 11 of verse, uh, in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to show you one more passage here in this letter. Paul, as he's defending his apostleship, says this in verse 23 of chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ? He says, I speak as if insane. I more so. And look at what he says. This is his ministry. This is his work for the Lord. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's also the daily pressure. It's the daily pressure on me of concerns for all the churches. He says, who is weak without my being weak? When someone's weak, I feel that. I empathize. Who is led into sin without my intense concern, Paul says. Who wants to sign up for that kind of ministry? 
Paul says, if I'm released, that's what I'm going to go right back to. Paul contemplated continuing on for the sake, not for his ease and comfort and relaxation and joy and retirement, but for the benefit of others. Being persecuted, even suffering, that wasn't even something that was in his mind. That wasn't something that was deterring him. He knew that his labor would entail all those things, but look at this. It was worth it to Paul. It was worth it. And you say, Dom, why was it worth it to him? Why would he put himself through all that? Why would he want to go through all that again if released? And the answer is right there in the text, back in Philippians 1. Because of fruitful labor. Because it will produce fruitful labor. It's not just dutiful work. It is delightful work because it produces spiritual fruit. You remember in Romans chapter 1, he said, I long to be with you all so that I might enjoy the spiritual fruit among you. I can impart some spiritual fruit to you. You say, well, what does that mean, spiritual fruit? What is, what is that? Well, in the New Testament, it talks about new converts are the first fruits. Why would you labor? Why would you go through all that? Well, because of the miracle of salvation, of regeneration. Imagine mom or dad or brother or sister or uncle or son or daughter, not a Christian, on their way to hell. But because of your faithfulness and proclaiming the gospel and praying, they actually come to faith and believe Jesus. And now, rather than going to hell, they're going to glory. Is that labor worth it? Absolutely. Yes and amen to that. New converts. But it's not just that. Living a sanctified life is also referred to producing the fruit of righteousness. We saw that back in Philippians 1.11. And we also know what the fruit of the Spirit is. Wouldn't it be so sweet if all of us actually just bore the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. What's next? Gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But that's what Paul has in mind here. He wants to bear more fruit. And he doesn't want to just bear more fruit. He wants the Philippians to bear more fruit. Winning people to Christ, producing this fruit, that is his heart's desire. So he says, look, if I'm going to stay in this world, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to spend my life. But Paul is also aware that if his time is up and his ministry is over, then he leaves this earth and he goes to glory. And that's fantastic, but there's still work to be done. And if I stay, I can continue to advance the kingdom and build the church. But if I go, I can be in glory and, and leave everything behind, all the sin and suffering and sorrow and tears. And you see what's going on here. It's exactly why Paul says, I am hard-pressed between the two. That's Paul's dilemma. I don't know which to choose. Now, it's not like Paul can make the choice. I mean, I guess if he wanted to, he can push something. But that's not what it's talking about here. He, he doesn't have the choice on the outcome. That's not in his hands. It's Caesar's decision. And even still, Caesar's not going to do anything unless God allows him to do that. But Paul uses this verb here, to choose. He doesn't know what to choose. He doesn't know how to decide because he wanted to set an example of what Christ-like thinking is for the Philippians and for us. 
Because when we're faced with these two really good decisions, there's a way for us to think about what we would choose, what we would want to choose. If given the choice to go and be with Christ or to continue living, what would you choose? But not just that question. What is the purpose for you wanting to continue to live? I remember really young, I wanted to get married. I got saved, but I wanted to get married. So Lord, I want you to come back, but wait till I get married. And oftentimes you keep putting things off. Wait till I have kids. Wait till I get a house. Wait till I am in pastoral ministry. Wait, wait till, and you just keep going on and on and on about wait, 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 because you love this world and you love the things of the world. And it's not necessarily the bad things. There's good things that you love and you just want to put off dying and being with the Lord because you're enjoying so much of the things here on earth. But is that Paul's attitude? No, this is a sanctified dilemma. His dilemma is continuing to magnify Christ with his body, doing ministry, or going and being home with the Lord. And so the text says he's hard-pressed. And that Greek term right there, hard-pressed, it, it just pictures a traveler on a narrow road, and you've got a rock and you've got a wall. That's where we get this kind of idea of stuck between a rock and a hard place. But he's, he's pressured in, he's, he's hemmed in, and he's, he's growing thinner and thinner and thinner. And that kind of keeps your eyes focused. Rather than looking to the right or to the left, Paul is keeping his eyes on Christ. Whatever you want me to do, Lord. I love the way John MacArthur puts this as he explains what it means to be hard-pressed. He writes this, quote, Every Christian ought to feel the strain of desiring to be with Christ, yet also longing to build his church. Now, if the Lord said to me, you have five minutes to choose between being in heaven or on earth. Pastor John said, I would have a difficult time making that decision. And I would want to be sure I was choosing for the right reasons. So I'd have to ask myself, can I glorify Christ more in heaven or on earth? And he says, Paul found it an impossible choice. End quote. That is Paul's dilemma. If given the choice between a life of ministry and a death that will usher him in to glory, Paul didn't know what he preferred. This is perplexing. These two great alternatives. But he elaborates here in verse 23 on these desires. Look there at the text in verse 23. He says, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. The reason why he's torn is because of this insatiable, strong desire to depart and be with Christ. That word desire, it's epithumia, and that word usually means lust or passion. Sometimes it's used as covetousness, but here Paul uses it in a good sense. That's because that word is actually a neutral word. It's really what is the object of your desire. So Paul even uses this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when he's talking about elders. He says in 1 Timothy 3.1, it is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, he says there, it is a fine work that he desires to do. But notice also here in the text 
That there's that word having before, having this desire. This is a present, ongoing craving of his own heart. And you say, what exactly does he desire? Well, it says right there, it's to depart. And we know that to depart, that's just a euphemism for death. Literally, that word is to loosen, to loosen. And it's actually a sailing metaphor, like pulling up the anchor so you can set sail. And this is where Paul is. He says it's about that time where the anchor is pulled and I want to sail on into glory. The word is also used of an army taking down a tent, pulling up the tent pegs, packing it up, and going on the next journey. And so what we see here is Paul is close to this point. Actually, Paul was a tent maker. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, he's talking about his body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. So he's ready to set sail. He's ready for those ropes to be loosened. But notice that he's not merely trying to escape this earthly life. It's not like he's preferring death because he's rejecting life. No, he's choosing Christ both ways. The reason Paul had such a strong desire to depart and be with Christ and to go home was because this was the best thing that could happen to him. Proximity-wise, personal fellowship, that is why he wants to depart. He loves Christ more than anything. He wants to be delivered from the shackles, both literally and figuratively. The shackles of the chains the shackles of what sin brings about, all the problems that he's facing in ministry in the world, the propensity towards sin, he wants to exchange all of that for the presence of Christ. And that's why he says that is very much better. Literally, it says much more better. Usually when our kids use those kind of, um, that phraseology, we have to correct them with proper English. Well, this is proper Greek. This is the way that Paul wanted to communicate it, that it is much more better. He's emphasizing just how comparative it is to be in God's presence than to stay here on earth. Uh, again, I remember uh, when Jess said yes to being married, I said, this is the greatest thing in the world, to be engaged. And then we got married. I was like, man, this is even better. And now we're 19 years in. I'm like, hey, this is even better. And then you talk to older people who've been married, you know, 35, 40 years, and they say, well, wait, wait till you get to 35, 40 years, or 50 years, it gets even better. And that's what Paul is saying. It is far, far better. Now, when he says that being with Christ is far better, he's not saying it's far better than the suffering of this life. He's saying it's far better than the best of this life. You catch that? I love what Mike Riccardi says about this text. He says this, death for the Christian is not merely the escape of the worst this life has to offer. It is an improvement on the very best this life has to offer because it brings us to an unhindered, unmediated, sin-free, face-to-face fellowship with our Lord Jesus. He is the great gain and the great glory of heaven. He is the great end of the Christian life. And that is why death is very much better. So again, 
What would you choose? Hurry up and be in heaven? I actually asked my mother-in-law that before I came up here. Because I know, last week she wasn't here. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Michael has, like, she's a bionic woman. All these surgeries. Um, she's got metal plates. She's like Wolverine. She's got, like, adamantium in her. For some of you that don't get it, sorry. A little geek, little geek there. But after all these surgeries, after all these pains, for those of you that have had cancer, for those of you that just keep struggling with sickness, man, you're thinking, I just want to go home and be in glory with a new glorified body. I think that is a good desire. But Paul says, no, I want to stay. But I don't want to stay just for me. I want to stay for the church of Christ. So look at Paul's determination here in verses 25 through 26. What is his conclusion? How does he solve this dilemma, these two competing desires? He says in verse 25, and convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy in your faith, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. Paul says, I'm convinced of this. And you say, convinced of what? He's convinced that it's more necessary for their sake to continue ministry here on earth. He says, look, in order to help you, I need to stick around. I want to stick around. Now remember, he's just said to go and be with Christ, that is far better, very much better. So if it's far better to go with Christ, why would he want to stick around? Why not just leave? Well, he gives two reasons, and it's right there in the text. Notice, he's no longer talking about what's better for him personally. No, that, that takes a back seat. He shifts from what is best for him to what is best for them. Four times you see it in these two verses. He is speaking about you, for you. Look out for what's best for them. Look at what he says. I am convinced that this is better for you and it's better for two reasons for their progress in the faith and for their joy in the faith their faith needed to progress it needed to advance it needed to mature and Paul was convinced that he could be a part of seeing that happen he wanted to be a part of that he wanted to play a role he's actually in a unique position to strengthen their faith as he continues to minister to them and again, he's been away for over a decade. But if I could just be with them again and encourage them and look at them face to face and love them and serve them, their faith will progress. Now, what's interesting is that Paul could have died here, this first imprisonment. And you know what would happen? We wouldn't have Colossians. We wouldn't have Philemon. We wouldn't have First and Second Timothy, and we wouldn't have Titus. So just think about all the content that is in those books. Now, of course, you can say, well, God could have raised up somebody else to write all those things, and that is true. But he continued on, and we've got instructions for the church and for leadership. We found out that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We found out how we're to conduct ourselves in the assembly of God. And on and on it goes. We found out about the deity of Christ in Colossians. Because Paul continued on in the faith. Second, it's not just for their progress, it's for their joy. And here's the reality, that when your faith is strengthened, 
When your faith is matured, guess what else escalates? Your joy, because they're proportional. The more that you grow in your understanding and knowledge of the Lord, love for the Lord, your joy increases. If Paul is truly living for Christ, then what him sticking around means that people will see more of Christ in him, experience more of Christ. And so the question is to you, by you being here, by you continuing on, by you having more sand in the hourglass, do people see more of Christ? Is their faith strengthened and encouraged? Are they progressing in the faith because of your presence? Well, for Paul, he said, man, to stick around, that is better for you. No longer thinking about himself. And there's something very, very profound here that I don't want us to miss. Paul said that to die for me is gain. It's better for me because I get to be with Christ. But there was something more important than what was better for Paul. Listen to this. Paul's eagerness to be with the Lord didn't mean that he was selfish. It didn't mean that he was elusive. You think about someone else who said that he wanted to die. Jonah. He said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. But what was Jonah's motivation for wanting to die? I don't want to go and preach. Not to them. I don't want them to repent. I'd rather go the opposite direction than to continue on in the Lord's work. That's a totally different attitude than what the Apostle Paul has here. No, he is so others-focused. He is resolved to spend himself for the spiritual needs of others. When you think about God saving you, whether that was last year or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, why did God save you? You think about his sovereignty calling you before the foundation of the world. Why did he elect you? You say, well, the Bible's answer is because he loved me. That's very true. He, He loved you. He poured out his life for you. He owns you now because of his blood on the cross. So you're his. You say, that's why God saved me. And that is so true. But listen, that's only part of the reason why God saved you. God saved you for you to enjoy the forgiveness of sins and the sweet fellowship of Christ and the communion with other believers. But God has saved you, Christian. God has saved you so that you would participate in his great redemptive work. Listen to what Titus chapter 2 says in verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And you say yes and amen to that, but you got to finish reading the verse. Zealous for good works. Christ save us, yes, to to purify us and to forgive us of all of our lawless deeds, to be his own possession, but also to be zealous for good deeds. Christ saved you to purify you. Amen. But Christ saved you that you would put your life on the line for others' joy in the faith. The Lord appointed good works and he expects good deeds to flow from your spirit filled life. And that is the essence of the Christian life. 
First John chapter 3 and verse 23 says this, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Peter tells us in his epistle, keep fervent in your love for one another. If you've been born again, your heartbeat should pulsate with love for other Christians. And you should march to the drumbeat of service to others. God has extended his grace to you, not just so that you can bask in the glories of heaven. That's part of it. But God has extended his grace to you so that you in turn can offer that grace that God offers to other people. You have been saved. You possess the Holy Spirit. You are being sanctified. But all that blessing is so that you can minister to others. Which tells me that if you're coming on Sunday just to sit and learn, and on the drive home, you're talking about whether it was good or not, was that like a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Was that an A? Was it a C? Was it a D? And that's all you do Sunday after Sunday? and you are not ministering to one another, you are not fulfilling the purpose for which you've been saved. Paul wants to be with Christ. Death will make that a reality. And yet, Paul realizes that life is not just about him. Church, life is not just about us. He was driven, Paul was. He was motivated by his love for the Philippians he said, this brief life on earth, it's the only chance I have to make much of Christ while I'm still here. Because when I get to heaven, there's no more evangelism. There's no more apologetics. There's no ministry in the sense that we get to experience it here on earth. You're not praying for people's salvation. You're not wrestling with, with, with God in prayer for the souls of others. Because in heaven, everyone's saved. No one's falling away. This right now is the only time that we have to invest money and resources and your gifting. God is going to have you come before him and give an account for all the gifts that he's given you, all the opportunities he's given you, all the resources he's given you. And he's going to ask, what did you do with all that I gave you? And look, this is where we discover something very profound. Because Paul's determination to continue to minister to the Philippians, it follows a pattern. You say, Dom, what pattern is that? Well, it's the same pattern that Christ had. It was his determination to come here to earth to seek and save the lost. In the next chapter, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about how Jesus left heaven to come down to earth and he took on the form of a slave, a bondservant, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. And it's remarkable when you think about this, because Paul wants to leave earth and be in heaven with Jesus. Jesus had to leave heaven and come to earth to make that possible. Philippians chapter 2 even says this, that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. So I'm going to set this aside for a time because I love them and I need to accomplish my redemptive purposes. Have you ever thought about it in that way? Christ left his perfect home, the better place to come to a sinful earth to lay down his life 
in sacrifice for others. So why does Paul conclude that it is better to remain? It's for the spiritual good of other people. It's for the spiritual good of the church. Christ loved his own. The Bible says he loved them to the end. Paul is just following suit. His motivation was Jesus' love. And that caused Paul to think, hey, I will postpone me going to glory because I just want to do what Jesus did, which is pour out my life for the sake of others. Brothers and sisters, that is how we are to view life and death. God can take you right now, and it would be the most glorious thing. You can be with him for all of eternity. But while he has you here, will you spend your life for him? There are people that desperately need you to open your mouth and share the gospel. There are people who need you to serve them, to meet them where they're at, to help remove the obstacles. Again, this, you don't save anybody, but you could be faithful and allow God to use you in his efforts to save others. Look, as we mature in our faith, we should have an ever-increasing desire to see Christ preeminent, to see his kingdom advance. This should be our first priority. And that's the ultimate purpose in Paul's mind. Look at it right here in verse 26. He says, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. That is Paul's ultimate purpose for remaining and continuing with this idea that they would boast not in him. Some translations make it sound like the boasting is in him. He is not the object of the boast, but he is the occasion for them to boast in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the point is very clear. God's people will clearly see the grace of God working through Paul and working through us as we diligently labor on Christ's behalf for their spiritual good. And that's a fitting in to this section as Paul closes. He started back in verse 12. The gospel is advancing. Christ is being preached. Christ will be magnified in Paul's body, whether by life or by death. And therefore, there's no need, Philippians, to worry. There's no need to be discouraged. There's no need to fret. God is accomplishing his good purpose in my life. And as long as he gives me time, I'm going to spend my life for the sake of others. Now, let me conclude with just this final thought. Because I want us to have some practical ways that we can apply this. And here's the first practical thing you can do. Don't listen to this message and think, that's only for pastors. That's only for missionaries or people who are involved in a ministry role. That would be a mistake. Listen, you might not be a pastor, but dads, raise your hand. Dads, dads, you are shepherds of your family, of your household. Are you spending your life for your family, discipling them, having family devotions, teaching them the scripture, setting the model by memorizing the scripture? Do your kids see you evangelizing and praying for others? Shepherd your home. Moms, I can't think of a sweeter opportunity. I love that my wife gets to be at home. She's got 
dual responsibility. She's taking care of me, but she's got a discipleship group that's in her house every single day, and it's our three kids. And there might be some missionary effort there because I don't know quite yet. But ladies, moms, don't ever devalue where the Lord has you if you're at home. You have an opportunity to raise up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What a tremendous privilege and honor. And listen, if you don't have any kids, minister to one another. Work together to minister to others, to neighbors, to friends, to coworkers. And if you're single, so what do I do? Well, you got more time than all of us. Go and spend yourself for the church. That's number one. Number two, I think just real practically, you need to remember that you are ministers of a new covenant. So you might not have the title or the name or the badge or the, or the door plate, but listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. He says, Paul says this, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Who else has the message of salvation but you, Christian? You are a minister of the new covenant. Not only that, but Peter says that you are a royal priesthood. The work of ministry is not just for Nick and I, the pastors. The work of ministry is for every Christian. So, you know what you can do on the way home? Talk about it. Be intentional. Think through with your family, what can you do to be more faithful, more fruitful? When you go to lunch with some other members here at our church or some visitors, think about this. Strategize. Where can you serve? How can you use your gifts? How, how, what, what cause can you give to to see the gospel advance? But every single day, God gives you an opportunity to represent him and to minister to the church and to minister to non-believers. Are you taking advantage of that? And here's the last thing I would say. And I'll commend you because you showed up this morning. Just show up on Sundays. Come and worship. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. Come hear one another sing. This is a means of God's common grace for all of us to be spurred on and rejuvenated, to confess sin, to sit under the word. God's desire for you is that you, together with us here at Grace Church Monterey Bay, grow and spend yourselves for God's people. Let's pray. Oh Lord, two amazing options. To depart and be with Christ, how magnificent would that be? No more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more heartache. Oh Lord, we can taste it, especially when we're sick, especially when we're dealing with trials and difficulties, especially when there's tensions within the family or in relationships. Oh Lord, we long for heaven in those moments. And I pray that you would help us when things are going great, when the money's coming in and when the health is there and when the vacations are happening and when there's friendship and laughter and joy. Lord, may we not cling to this earth too much, but may you help calibrate, Lord, our hearts and help us to recognize that our time here on earth is limited. For some of us, we're halfway dead. 
we, we've already lived what for a lot of people be before us was a full life. And Lord, if you should tarry and give us more time, I pray, Father, that we would not be selfish. We wouldn't just live for ourselves, that we wouldn't be all about binge-watching television, that, that we wouldn't be just about um, sports and recreation and amusing ourselves to death, but we would understand that there is a lost world that needs the gospel and a church that needs to be built up and strengthened. So, Father, may we use this life and offer it up as a holy and living sacrifice, acceptable in your eyes, which is our reasonable act of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.